0: Welcome to the AJP Heart and Circ Podcast. I'm Kara hansel kehan Today we'll discuss a new study by Berkert et al. titled, Revisiting Cardiac Output Estimated Non-Invasively from Oxygen Uptake During Exercise, an Exploratory Hypothesis Generating Replication Study. This Methods and Resources article was published August twenty fifth, 2023. Joining us today are Associate Editor Dr. Keith Brunt, author Dr. Holger Bruchert, and expert Dr. William Stringer. Let's get started. Keith?
1: Thanks, Kara. This uh, research we will discuss today is a new publication under the AJP Methods and Resources article type. Our team at AJP are keenly interested in reinforcing confidence in the literature and leading best practices in physiological assessment and validation of methodological approaches. Moreover, listeners may be keen to know that at the journal, we are going to host and serve as a repository for depositing raw original physiological data for new or collective analyses and are encouraging physiologists to make such credited deposits. Here, we have a compelling story to unpack that demonstrates the important contribution of methodological advancement built upon foundations of established literature, methods, and physiological principles. Arterial mixed venous oxygen content differences are expected to increase linearly with a percentage of maximum O2 consumption. Here, the authors found that a linear approximation could be advanced further to avoid over- or underestimating cardiac output, by incorporating a third order polynomial S-curve fitting of the data. Moreover, they determined that the inflection point of this function could be related to the first ventilatory threshold and the oxygen dissociation curve threshold. This could markedly improve the sensitivity and specificity of determining cardiac output in diverse subpopulations. and may even have clinical utility in some cases. So let's dive in with Dr. Burchart, the first author of this methodological improvement and Dr. Stringer, the OG of the linear method determination some few years prior. Uh, Welcome to you both. I'm so excited to have you come together today to discuss this work and help educate me and our listeners on some core principles of physiology, as well as maybe share your journeys in developing and advancing these methods. Gentlemen.
2: Thanks. Happy to be here. Yeah, thank you very much for having me.
1: Now, Dr. Burchardt, for the new learners, can you kind of orient us a little bit on Fick's principle and just why measuring cardiac output during exercise is an important physiological consideration?
2: So yeah, Fick's principle goes back to the um, physiologist Adolf Fick, um, who found out that the uh, cardiac output is equal to the oxygen consumption uh, measured at the lungs divided by the arterial mixed venous oxygen content difference. And um This was proposed in uh, 1870, I believe. And this is so the fundamental principle that we exercise physiologists use in cardiopulmonary exercise testing, because from that many other relationships can be uh, investigated or exercise physiology understood. Especially we can measure oxygen consumption non-invasively very easily. That's um, not a big problem. Um, Measuring heart rate as well. So one component of cardiac output is also readily available. And other things are more difficult, of course. Uh, Sampling arterial blood and mixed venous blood is uh, rather challenging. And so, yeah, methods uh, have been tried to be found for a long time to to get closer to um, non-invasive methods to avoid those sampling uh, approaches. But, um, and yeah, and Dr. Stringer and his colleagues um, uh, developed a a very beautiful and elegant approach to it with the uh, linear approximation that we measured. That that's fixed principle in a nutshell, so to say. With regards to the importance in cardiovascular medicine, of course, it's quite fundamental for the diagnosis, the treatment, or prognostic evaluation of of almost all heart diseases. I would say um, I have to emphasize: I'm not a clinician, but uh, in medical science, of course, this uh, this is what you normally would like to do to measure cardiac output during exercise. This is because the body can compensate certain impairments at rest. Uh, a particular example from my field of research would be the group where I did my PhD at Oxford, for example, investigates cardiovascular risk in um, preterm-born people. And in, we found a couple of years ago that if you investigate um, preterm-born young adults, for example, you'll find they have the same ejection fraction at rest as term-born controls. But if you challenge them with exercise stress, you will find that the ejection fraction uh, is reduced in those born preterm and also the cardiac output reserve is reduced in those born preterm. So exercise is a very useful tool to uncover uh, impairments that uh, the body is able to, to hide while being in a resting state.
1: That's great. And I think you nailed it there. You know, it's about the direct versus indirect and the clinical utility. And I would say that, you know, people may be using some of this uh, methodology without even realizing it, because it's already incorporated into clinical equipment. And the linear method was was actually a, a basis for some of the analytical software and, uh, and our appreciation understanding for some time. But, but you actually noticed that there was some deviation. Yeah,
2: go ahead.
3: Before you leave this, um, I can't resist. First of all, it was written in the original German. So Holger can actually read the original German. Um, There was actually a translation that was done in the New England Journal in 1948, which you can read in English, which I had to do because my German is terrible. Um, But um, my interpretation of it was basically just a two paragraph article.
2: It's a conference uh, abstract, I believe, right? Yes, it had been to a
3: conference. I'm just going to project it here for you. Um, This is what it looks (laughs) like. Um, and, and basically not only is it insightful, um, but it talks about the same as true for CO2 as O2, as you can look, look at the VA difference for CO2, or you look for the AV difference for oxygen. And basically at the end, and Holgar can comment here, he says, well, you know, this is so obvious, I don't even need data. So it was a lot easier to be a young scientist back then um, because you could publish and become famous and people don't forget your name ever by a two paragraph summary of a a meeting. So I I love the irony of that. Um, Maybe I'll give Holgar a chance to see, you know, because I said he can actually read it in German. I can't. so.
2: Yeah, I, well, I'm aware of the, the fact that it's, it's yeah, it's, it's a, I think a conference abstract it was. And um yeah, I, I have to say I, I never read it in German, though. <laughs> I should do it, probably. <laughs> yeah, I should take advantage of being a native speaker. Yes, I know. Well, normally yeah. it's bet- better to to be able to speak english and to read the the literature i mean today the uh english is the language you need to to do to to learn when you want to do a, uh, when you become a scientist um, well yeah, that
3: guy is... <laughs> clear, clearly you can be published in german and become famous so um you don't need english um but i i'll, I'll send it to you after the podcast so you can read it i'd love to get your interpretation uh, apparently it's a little bit older german um so maybe it's not perfect but
2: i should be fine i have a minor degree in history so
3: <laughs> all right so you you cannot give a podcast about thick principle without having read the original article
1: so. So, so what we're gonna do is we're gonna we're gonna on the tweet of the podcast we'll attach the original german uh i have it as an image yeah. uh we'll, we'll incorporate that but it's a good a good you know uh, intro to, to the importance of the history of, of physiological principles and how we're still using these today. <laughs> good perspective on I think how trainees need to look back to look forward uh, and, and realize that you know methods continuously improve based on these core principles. Um, now now Holger, one of the things that I I think uh, you, is that you noticed really that there was some deviation in, in the data patterns itself for this relationship. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you came to appreciate that and and how really this this investigation of yours opened up?
2: Yeah, that was doing my PhD. Um I completed my PhD just last year and uh, I had to learn cardiopulmonary exercise testing for that and did it then on a frequently or daily basis and um so in the beginning in a PhD when you have all this equipment around you that you need to get familiar with that you need you start playing around with it and hit every button and um, look into the software and the I realized that when I export my data um, that there is a column from the software that says cardiac output estimated on bo 2 max. I, I worked in, a, in the cardiovascular clinical research facility at Oxford, where it's everything about um, imaging. So it's a core lab for echocardiography. And one level below is the Oxford Center for Magnetic Resonance Imaging. So um, there they don't have trouble to get cardiac output measured. But I, I thought, okay, that's cool that the CPAT can apparently do that or at least approximate um, this. And then I was curious and just wanted to know how how good is it? How how accurate is it? And so I went, pulled out the manual and was referred to Professor Stringer's article. To, and um, yeah, I read it and was just fascinating and thought it's such a beautiful idea. Because as I said, it's kind of circumvents the problem that you have normally two unknowns in fixed principle. You don't have cardiac output. You don't have mixed venous blood. You don't have arterial blood. So um, it's I thought it's just a wonderful approach to circumvent this problem by proposing that this the arterial venous oxygen difference can be predicted um, or behaves in a predictable manner based on percent VO2 max and I then kind of spotted I think quite early the kind yeah deviation I was talking to to my dear friend Fabian to it who's the co-author on that paper and uh, his background is quantum physics he did his PhD in that and he's quite particular with uh with things and I showed it to him and I was like yeah it's, it's not quite linear is it is, is it just me what what would you say and this is how we started and the other thing was that I thought so. When I opened it for the first time, I thought, "Okay, cool. This is from 19. I believe it's 1997, if I'm not uh, if I'm correct." And I thought, "Okay, this is beautiful, but is I, I couldn't find anything further in in on PubMed or any other database. I, I I thought, okay, has someone ever tried to advance on this because it's a it's a cool approach? And but is is that everything, or is there anything more that? could be done and so it was just spotting the deviation and thinking okay maybe there's a chance to to push this a little bit further.
1: Over to you Bill I mean come on this was 26 years ago it it must have been thrilling and impactful for you to see this paper come out right off the cuff sort of citing your your original uh, methodological approach you you know can you can you tell us what your initial feelings were when you saw this uh, paper?
3: Well, um, they they sent it to me as a reviewer. And at first I thought, you know, I probably shouldn't review this because, you know, I'm too close to this topic. Um, But you just heard Holger give a wonderful explanation of the cardiac output and how it can be used and the difficulty with um, very advanced equipment to get cardiac output. Something that occurred to me after these, in, these invasive CPETs um, was uh, a way to do it non-invasively so that it could be used in, in CPET machines. And so it's very exciting to me. First of all, we're talking about physiology. Second of all, we're talking about the fit cardiac output. And you know, third of all, you have a young person like Holgar who just got his PhD who's interested in physiology and has thought critically about this. I'm a pretty simple guy. Um, Linearity is okay with me, but I I like nonlinear curves, Uh, you know, reference the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, uh, which will come up later in the podcast. Um, So I thought it was wonderful. And the more I read it before I said, you know, I can't be a reviewer, I thought I've got to review this because I love this in science, the data is the data, right? The interpretation may change, the analysis may change, but the data is the data. And I love the fact that um, the journal is really thinking about putting together data across studies. And so how to do that so that there is really, you know, advanced or newer or other ways to think about things as Biological science advances, especially um, physiology. I think is just wonderful. So I was I was very encouraged about it. I mean, obviously, you know, you're you're too attached to your own papers, and uh, Hogar will get very attached to his own papers too. Um, but it's a great thing, and there there's some wonderful figures in his paper, including Figure Five, which you know really tries to be an integrative mechanism. Um, so I love that figure too. So he's not only thought about the you know the SC shape curve, but he's thought about what does that mean in terms of the other variables. The last thing I would say is oxygen uptake is very hard to explain to cardiologists. Um, Cardiologists like to talk about cardiac output. So I figured I needed to speak that language if I was going to reach cardiologists. And hopefully later in the podcast, we'll talk about heart failure and the way that the body compensates for heart failure. Um, But I think that's a way to reach them. And we took data from um, heart failure studies and it has the same relationship, um, which is just uh, a nice verification of the the normals, which obviously um, is much more difficult to study these days.
1: So, so we're going to make this a required uh, listening for also our PGYC uh, residents, maybe. <laughs> I, th- I think that's uh, a a great uh, teaser here to to some of the clinical utility that I was I was alluding to. And, and Holger, you already mentioned the pediatric uh, evidence, but you know, stress testing patients and. Uh, really understanding the risk factors in in anemia, we'll, we'll dig into. Th- there was something that that I wanted to bring to the attention of listeners and, and particularly trainees out there. And this was a, a, a tool that uh, you used, Holger, um, to cross-reference and extract values from work published, including almost 60 years ago by R-Strand in 1964. And it was yeah, called I have, Web I have Plot Digitizer. You.
2: Yeah, I have to have to correct you probably on on that one because for uh, yeah for the data of, of William, I, I actually I used that exactly. Um, for the data of um, Astrand, Astrand, I, I don't know exactly how to pronounce it. There was no need to use it because fortunately, um, the authors back then. Published the data in a table and oh, this okay. per per participant per individual, and the only thing that was required was to to express them as percentage of the of the participant's maximal VO2 value. So, um, and this was actually the purpose of uh, bringing these data into the paper because I wanted to have an external data base or data to just validate what I see there to be sure. Okay, can I reproduce? I mean reproduce this so to say uh retrospectively in a different data set that is independent and um, and that does optimally w- would not need to uh to rely on webload digitizer but um yeah Webplot digitizer is um is a nice tool I stumbled upon it because Christine Zainani, um, she's a professor in statistics and epidemiology in, at Stanford University, and I followed her work, um, or I still follow her work, uh, because um, she wrote quite a, a couple of papers about statistics, and um, there was one paper, I believe it was called, uh, or titled, um, How to be a Statistical Detective. And that was mentioned if you see a plot and you think, OK, maybe there is an outlier with the regression still persist uh, and so on. And there she introduced that that tool and which is all, also used in uh, meta analysis. And I, uh, I, I totally loved it and used it one time to also just just check something. And um, then I saw that some research groups. Um, already developed their own tools. Uh, I think it's uh, Sibylle Schirm uh, at, uh, I think, Leipzig University in Germany. Their group, I believe, also developed a tool. And um, so there are several tools which have their pros and cons. And you can basically upload a plot from a paper or wherever you get it from. And you can then define the the axis of that plot and then tag well, either manually by yourself individual data points, so therefore retrieving the X and Y coordinates of each point. So you're getting the raw data back. And um uh yeah, and so you can start your own analysis or just check uh the if the original analysis is correct, or um yeah.
1: And and I can't emphasize how important it is to have those original data points. So this is why we make it a requirement at the journal that original data points within the end values be represented that we move away from the old
3: dynamites Still, I have to say something yeah. you know the original Wasserman paper you know was you know 20 some pages you know with multiple figures and multiple tables and and you really could get at and that's what Astrand did you know he put down all the different subjects and their actual values and so um, I wish that that was possible. And I think what you're talking about with this podcast, is there a way to have this data available? Um, so it's not buried in some appendix someplace, and it actually, you know, helps the, the human race somehow.
2: This is very interesting, anyway, because when I was looking for more data to, to validate it, I I saw more articles from that time where the authors did that, published their individual. So I think in the I think it's in the limitation sections um, we highlight two more articles where we found uh, data where this was done as well. So there was a time where people, yeah, in the in the table just plugged in their their uh, individual data, um, and then yeah, somehow they stopped.
1: And and it's just it's a credit to history, right? That you were able to you know extract data that's 60 and 26 years old, reassess it. And, and add something fundamentally new, and I, and I think we've got to be good historians as physiologists and, and record keepers. Now, I will say that the journal here does not limit figures or tables any longer at AJP. It's really important. We, in fact, we encourage all authors to bring all supplementary material that's relevant to the conclusions forward. So you need not worry. You can publish a long paper with many ta- figures and tables. But but even so, you know we we are looking for those raw uh, data. Uh, whether they're physiological tracings or tables. And and for this exact reason, we can improve upon our, our understanding fundamentally in our history. Now, there's a little bit um, of an open question I just kind of wanted to throw out there, which is, you know, Bill, do, do you still have original data? Would <laughs> What are the chances out of curiosity that that data is laying in, in an Excel sheet somewhere?
3: Well, um, okay, so I'm going to get rid of my background here so that
2: um you can see well do you have a blackboard with all the data in the background right (laughs) behind
3: me i have the data from when i was a fellow um you know so you know (laughs) it's important to keep that data and 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 the data is the data you spend a lot of time and effort to get it from patients and they they um spend a lot of time with you in the research lab so um i'd be happy to put it any place that would help other people um i think that the, the analysis characteristics of that with AI and other things are going to, you know, reach a, a new level, or really already have, but probably will have further uh, advancements. So, um, yes, I mean, I think a lot of times you'll read articles that show that people did the same thing over and over and over again without advancing to the next level. It's like, what does this mean, or how do we use it, or how do we make patient care better? Um, and and we go back to to doing the same things over. I guess that's human nature. So. Um, I think it's important to take that data and and put it together um, in a in a fashion that's you know obviously different studies are done in different ways. You have to have some level of granularity of how the data was collected, um, but I think it's super important. And yeah, it really speaks
1: to the, the process of open data and making it accessible in different formats. You know, raw original uh recording in analog even as a digital file or or anything like that can be can be done and now we have these sophisticated tools that can even take extractions from tracings um and and right now i just see this this uh, uh filing cabinet system behind doc- dr stringer loaded with all sorts of uh, uh raw paper tracings and everything else that he's pointing to and i love it I- so
2: we just need a, a very willing uh, series of volunteers but to scan these j- and just just file next to the original publication of fake, <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> which is
1: yeah. which is framed, yeah. Yeah, beautiful. I,
3: have, I have a small memorial to fix up there as well. So,
1: <laughs> so, so I, I think for for you know the, the younger scientists that are listening, um, you, you know, you can make creditable contributions. That are more than just interpretation data; they can be the original data themselves, and that can be really important. Especially as we we look to um, reinforce open data access, generative AI, microphysiological systems, computer modeling of physiology. Um, you know, there's a lot of potential there to really advance science in, in new and unique ways with computational uh, ability. So, but we need the inputs for that. So, absolutely, save your data, but don't don't just publish the figure, submit the data, and get credit for that. Um, it's really important. And, and I guess, you, you know, do you, do you anticipate that we'll, you know, gentlemen, we'll find some additional patterns that still require even further advancement or methodological adjustments in this particular te- technique? I know, Holger, you, you alluded to some sex differences and there was some positing regarding hemoglobin binding and the oxygen dissociation curves. And I'm just thinking about obesity and aging and COPD and anemia. And, and we've, we've already kind of alluded that we're going to get into this a little bit. Um, You know, how do we use these methods in diverse humanity, I guess is really the question.
2: Yeah, <laughs> so I'm very, very glad that uh, William likes uh, nonlinear curves. Um, but coming back to the difference between the linear and nonlinear model, the difference is, as we mentioned, the limitation is not very big. So uh, the linear model is already a very, very, very good uh, approximation of the, of the data. So the key lies indeed for me rather in, in the mechanisms or in the, in what else we can find or in the relationships that that we propose if, if there is are ways that, that probably uh, improve this to an extent that is um well significant on a clinical level uh, so one one of the things that, that I'm very interested in is whether the inflection point is related indeed to the uh, first ventilatory threshold so establishing that or finding that would be very interesting so uh, having a look at the at the original data might be a very very interesting first step there. But also um, the so what what gives me sleepless nights at the moment is um, rather the oxygen dissociation curve, um, because this is um, not my particular field of expertise. I have to say I'm not a biochemist or a biomedical engineer. And uh, when I had the idea that the inflection point of the oxygen dissociation curve may be related to the inflection point in the arteriovenous oxygen difference. Uh, during exercise and the first ventilatory threshold, I thought, okay, that's that's super interesting, but I can't be the first person who has had this thought and I tried to find work on the inflection point on the oxygenization curve and was quite surprised to that it's quite difficult to find anything. I, I don't know, it's just me not being able to get out of my <laughs> search bubble, but that was uh, quite an, an interesting thought. So maybe this is a way to, to progress further on the method. And, um, yeah, don't know, maybe William has some further thoughts on that. Yeah. I have always have thoughts on everything. So (laughs) that's good, Uh,
3: but you know, I, I love the word that you said mechanisms because mechanisms help us understand what's going on physiologically. And then they give us ways to translate that into something that's good for patients. Right. So, um, the mechanism of the increase in cardiac output during exercise is important, right? So, If you look back at Astrand's paper in 1964, he says, well, you know, the stroke volume really doesn't get that much better um, after about 40% of the um, peak oxygen uptake. So what he's saying is it either stays the same or it drops. One of those two is probably true. Um, I can Mm -hmm. give you my opinion, but um, at least if that's stable, the only other way to increase cardiac output um, further into exercise is your heart rate, right? So we see that the heart rate is very linear, Um, uh, throughout the exercise test. So that's a mechanism for cardiac output. So what's the mechanism for AB difference during exercise? And so um, there's two ways to do it. Um, One way is to increase the arterial oxygen content. And you do actually concentrate um, your arterial blood um, by about a gram or deciliter, even in a 10 minute test. Um, And so Bike racers and other people know that hemoglobin is important, um, and they uh, they maximize it, right? So the way to increase the AB difference is to increase the arterial and decrease the venous. So how do you decrease the venous? Well, it comes back to that pause that holger has got a hold of there. What goes on at the AT? Uh, what's going on physiologically, and why is that kind of an important pause in the middle of uh, a progressively ramp exercise test? Um, What goes on there is lactate begins to uh, submit it. So so Holgar, you have to back up three more years before 1997 and go to a paper in 1994 where we talk about lactic acidosis facilitating oxygen um, dissociation during exercise. So is lactate bad during exercise? Yeah, you could say, yeah, lactate's the source of all evil in the world. Um, But it's not, right? It's actually a signaling molecule that this cell would like a lot more oxygen to do what you're asking it to do. Um, And so how does it do that? It progressively desaturates um, the hemoglobin at a partial pressure that still drives oxygen into the cell. Um, So that's a mechanism that it does to increase the AV um, um, oxygen difference. So um, mechanistically, we can now understand that. So if we take that and apply that to a clinical situation, we know people with heart failure have low cardiac outputs. Um, And so how do they continue to do exercise? They increase their AV difference just like normal people do, and so the AV difference is not impaired in that particular group unless they're anemic. And we've found that people who are anemic actually have very poor outcomes in heart failure um, for the very reason that they're not going to be able to compensate with the AV difference. So that's that. And then the last thing is um, how do we how do we make this into something that's translational? there's been a lot of efforts to increase cardiac output in people with heart failure, you know, um, AV um, devices, um, synchronization, transplant, etc. But there hasn't been a lot of thinking about how do you fix the AV difference other than make sure they're not anemic. Um, and this comes back to, you know, is there a way to make the hemoglobin more able to dissociate? Um, is there a way to change the N number or change the um, the characteristics of that hemoglobin, not just how much it is, but how how well it functions? So there may be another intervention that's different than what we've thought about in the in the past that now because of biomedical advances may be a way to improve hemoglobin um, structure and function. So I would put that out there that mechanism, mechanism, mechanisms. If, if you understand mechanisms, you can think about ways to translate that into something that makes the patient do better with whatever problem they've got, how they compensate for that problem.
1: So, so this is really important for anybody who's an elite athlete, all the way to anybody who's chronically managing Kidney failure or heart failure, because these shifts are going to be really fundamental, and we may not really have a complete understanding of neuroendocrine physiology and compensation here. Is that is that kind of what you're alluding to here?
3: Yeah, and Lance Armstrong was a good physiologist, actually.
1: <laughs> we won't we won't uh, explain how that hack works exactly, but um... <laughs> well, um,
3: you could you could go back to exactly how that works. Right, um, he was using EPO.
1: Well, and, well we know that.
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: But he
1: wasn't
2: well, for all the time that he said he wasn't, so. Right. Yeah. But well, I couldn't uh, agree more. It's all about the mechanisms, right? So, um when we wrote the paper, we I reached a point where I um was trying to to so you mentioned the the figure 5 a couple of minutes ago and I th- there was a point where I I couldn't bring it together where where I thought okay, it's it's behaving in an S-shaped manner. Downwards the the mixed Venus oxygen content, and I I thought well, but at the same time it must follow the oxygen dissociation curve of curve, but it's totally doing the opposite, and and I was struggling to 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 get this in line, and at some point I stumbled upon this nice paper from uh, or general work. It's in a couple of papers from uh, Storz and Bautista, I think, and where they make these wonderful two quadrant plots. Um, uh, where the blood O2 content is on the y-axis and then there on the x-axis there is blood PO2 and then they plot the oxygen dissociation curve and next to it just uh, another A- x-axis, so to say, where you have the cardiac output and they kind of visually give you an impression of fixed principle. Um, so th- that was just amazing and I showed this to to my friend Fabian and I thought this is amazing this is just a wonderful if if you appreciate fixed principle this is this is just perfect and this is, I think what we should show students much earlier <laughs> and um it's uh and I showed it to Fabian and he said oh that's nice that reminds me of um of four quadrant transistor plots from the, as i said his background is physics and and I was like Okay, so technically, I could add another plot or another quadrant or two more quadrants to that. What could that be? And I was spinning around ideas. And then I realized, oh, wait a minute, it behaves reciprocally to the ODC. So basically, I get Wagner diagrams out of it in the end. So that was where where kind of things started to make sense again. (laughs) So it's all about mechanisms and thinking how to get how do you get those pieces together.
1: Yeah, I think it's a great point, you know, that, that, you know, in teaching that, that figure five is what attracted me the most for sort of a fourth level or advanced physiology course is having students explain that and think about that would be a beautiful emphasis to to maybe end end, and round out here. Um, So I invite everybody to kind of look at that, that figure, if you haven't read it, if you're a physiological educator or you're, you're a junior scientist and see, you know, test yourself. Does this make sense as as I interpret this? And can I explain it to another person? Um, Now, now, um, Dr. Birchardt, you you had mentioned that you had some interest in in additional prospective data collection. So to your potential future collaborators out there and listeners, um, how how might we help you in that? What what sort of data or, or people would you be looking for?
2: So yeah, well, of course, having a look at the original data would be amazing. It's in particular if if it's available at all. Um, the uh, like on an individual level, like uh, because the the plot, the original plot in in Williams' paper is, um, of course, um, has I think it's five participants, uh, participants and ten exercise tests, and um, so of course I can from that you cannot differentiate the participants and. I, what I would find very interesting is to have the uh, individual participant data if they exist at all, like, for instance, hemoglobin levels uh, would be interesting, interesting. Where is the uh, first ventilatory threshold in each of those participants, and how do hemoglobin levels have an impact on uh, on that at, at all, because um, I have some suspicion that it does, because when I look at, for instance, figure four, where I superimposed both nonlinear curves, um, the, in the asnd data the uh, curve is a bit higher um, or has a higher offset and um, I wonder whether this has to do with him what certainly has to do with hemoglobin levels I would say and also the curvature is slightly different so I wonder if the curvature of the third order polynomial is related in some way with hemoglobin levels so kind of these things I would be interested um the other thing that is, super super interesting to me at the moment is the question what does the inflection point of the oxygen dissociation curve do when we take into account the Bohr effect because at um, the ventilatory threshold we would expect that um, we have a what? Well, yeah, respiratory acidosis so you would rather um, think of the curve as, um, especially for mixed venous blood um, the blood being more acidified and um, so the curve should shift to the right and I was actually thinking doing that until I realized that this probably will not give me the correct answer. Um, I stumbled upon a sentence from, uh, in a paper from Professor Dash from, I think he's the head of biomedical engineering at the University of Wisconsin. And he writes in one sentence that uh, this will not, uh, that the shift of the curve is not, uh, or it's only achieved by a change in while P50 and the shape of the oxygen dissipation curve is not changed. The simple way to think about it is the, the original Hill equation, if we get back into history again, <laughs> which has two parameters, the, the half saturation uh, of or the PO, PO2 or the partial pressure of oxygen at half saturation, and the Hill coefficient, which is the exponent. And the Bohr effect in the Zeveringhaus model is only achieved by a change in P50, therefore shifting the curve to, just to the right. And the exponent, this hill coefficient, is kept fixed. I actually had a, I can't say that, I had a short correspondence uh, with uh, Professor Dash because I wanted to be sure if that really has no impact on the uh, saturation of the inflection point, which he confirmed. So if you do not change the, the exponent, the inflection point saturation of the oxidant dissipation curve will remain fixed. Mm-hmm. And this was for me jaw-dropping. It's, for him, it was seemingly, he answered within a day. So for him, it was seemingly very obvious. So maybe for <laughs> biochemists or biomedical engineers, this is very boring. And for me, it was just like, what? So the, the model will not be accurate? Okay, so I have to get a more advanced model or something. So I wonder what... So he has published uh, a more advanced model of the oxygen decision curve, uh, which also takes into account shape changes of the curve. So therefore the hill coefficient is changing during a right shift of the curve. And so I'm exploring what that means, but there's also far more other work because these are still in vitro curves. And as far as I understand, if we talk about in vivo oxygen decision curves, the case it might be different again so what i've so back, coming back to your question i i would be keen to have a biochemist a biomedical engineer <laughs> helping me out there
1: it's fantastic so so bioengineers biophysicists listen up collaboration is on on the table
3: but well there must be there must be a number of of people that do is spend a lot of time with hemoglobin um you you mentioned briefly about the changes in the curve um severinghaus actually thought a lot about that but you know you think about what does actually shift the curve and you know it's temperature it's co2 it's ph and it's 2,3 dpg right so When you think about the body um the body if you're going to model something you'd want to model something that's down in the muscle where it's very low ph very high co2 high temperature um, all the things that facilitate unloading right and then when you get to the lung you want to get rid of that co2 you actually want to drop the the temperature and you um you actually want to improve the ph by getting rid of um, co2 through the alveolus so you want to model that as the body, even as that red cell makes the transit peripherally back to centrally, is actually being affected in different ways that, that again, um, adapt to um, the the method of either oxygen loading at the lungs or oxygen unloading at the tissue. Um, The only other thing um, I wanted to say was, I wanted to share this because... You were talking about these curves um this is a a curve that um, dr whip put together for the handbook of physiology and most students don't remember the handbook of physiology um it used to be a very high level publication of physiology um, and this is putting together oxygen uptake, CO2 output, alveolar ventilation, ventilation, and the effects of CO2R and b on the ventilatory equivalent. So um, the same kind of thing, you can stare at these kind of diagrams and and for hours, um, and actually it's almost like a Zen moment. Um, and the same thing, I, I think Holgar's is going to be the same. It's really a it's a thoughtful way to put together what Wagner has thought about for a long time with the rest of those variables, including the oxygen association curve.
2: That's fantastic to, for, for the listeners. Just uh, uh, Dr. Stringer just showed it in a four-quadrant plot again, so <laughs> how you can bring all those variables together. Yeah. It's amazing. So that, there,
3: there's something zen about four quadrants.
2: Well, well, I can already say you can add far more quadrants. I mean, at some point, it doesn't make sense anymore. But um, uh, I already played around with that.
3: (laughs) Sort of like three dimensional chess or something. So yeah, yeah, we're getting
1: into fourth and fifth dimensions on the chess game. But I I think this is a good example where you can extend collaborations out to your computationalists and get some theoretical modeling working. um, So you can actually vet and test whether things stay in range of the physiological principle or not. Um, and then, and then test that out, you know, even in sub in, uh, subfractions of data collection, whether that's like athletes in winter sports or, or other situations clinically that, that could be relevant to just, just what you're saying there, Bill. I I, I want to keep going because I, I feel we're turning into a lecture, but um, any final thoughts here on uh, what you would in particularly say as advice to maybe some of our junior scientists and trainees?
3: Well, um, don't get old. That's one. Two would be, you know, just maintain <laughs> your fascination with the body. Every young person should read, you know, William Cannon's Wisdom of the Body. The the way the body deals with um, everyday life, which is chaotic and physiologically different every day, is incredible. Um, and the cardiovascular system and the ventilatory system are just absolutely Wonderful. So maintain that fascination with the body and how it works, and trying to understand it better. Um, I think getting into a good research environment, where you have mentors that are you know care about you and want to grow you um, as a person, as a researcher, to you know the greater good of humanity, and and then finding things that can be moved from the you know the, the, the translational bench to um, real patients um, is super important. So think about how you can help patients and and we tend to think about sports medicine and the the principles there apply to patients. Um, it's just on a different level. You talked about people that are premature. It's true of the lungs too, the lungs don't develop to the age um, appropriate level. And you know by 25 all of our our lungs are starting to lose alveoli. Um, So that progression, if you don't get up to a high enough level, more more rapidly develops um, into something that's a a pathological condition. So um, development in kids is very important and sports is um, something that is important for that. So I think that, you know, the research is really one of the things that makes humanity better. And um, science has suffered a lot during COVID. Um, You know, we're not felt to know what we're doing anymore. And so Um, I think that's not true. I think if Fick was here today, he would be happy to see that there's data that shows that um, some of those things that he postulated in 1870 are are absolutely 100% right on. And we're still talking about him. Um, so realize that there, you know, they're going to be greater and lesser achievements in, in medicine and science, but you have to, um, you have to apply yourself to something you're interested in and uh, find that topic and stay with it. And, you know, to see Holgar interested in this topic, you know, something that's 26 years old, you know, or 50 or 60 years old with astrons is wonderful. So I think, you know, hopefully that'll um, continue into something that makes um, patient care better.
2: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, what, what shall I add to that? Yeah, I think just from from a young scientist side, it's, um, I would just encourage um just young students or or researchers just try try it out play around with the data sometimes and if you if you reach a point where you where you don't find anything in the literature then things might get interesting (laughs) and uh, and also um, I mean what what is wonderful for me on this work is uh, as I mentioned uh, I collaborated with this former school of sports friend uh, Fabian here on this paper which is wonderful who has totally different background and so I had to explain a lot of uh things which are totally obvious for for us three here um to him in great length um (laughs) so that he could follow me on where I was going and uh, it was just just super cool so even though he's not uh an expert in physiology he could add his expertise and um this was fantastic and also um so I just so if, if you have people you know uh who could help you Uh, try it out and maybe they could could add something that is very important. Um, And so by this, I would just thank Fabian again that he helped me with this paper because without him, uh, this would have not come about. And also I would like to highlight uh, Dr. Dennis Infanger, who is, uh, we highlighted him in the acknowledgements because he's the uh, statistician in the research group in Basel where I work now. And he uh, thankfully had a final look at my R code and had some very good and wonderful final thoughts on that and added a few lines in the end um which was that was for me the cherry on top of the ice cream uh it was just just perfect and uh so thank you very much for that and also um with regards to the supervisor with what uh william mentioned yeah it's it's wonderful to have supervisors who who to help you grow and uh, i'm very fortunate that I have, but uh, well, yeah, had I was very lucky. I so I want to thank uh, Professor Adam Lewandowski, who was my supervisor doing my PhD, that he, yeah, allowed me just to explore this aside from my uh, my general PhD work because as I said, this was just a side project that developed um, in the middle of the PhD and he gave me just the time and freedom to just um, uh, try it out so that's that's as a young researcher this is just amazing if, if you your supervisor sees that you you're interested and that you're fascinated by something and that you might be on something and let just let you try it out and um, also the same applies for my current uh, supervisor professor Hannah Hansen um, who you also just let me just finish the paper and um, yeah, just encouraged me to to try it out. Um, it's just, just fantastic to have people who see that, um, that you, you go on your own and um, try it out. Can I add
3: one more thing to that? You know, one of the things that I think is fascinating about his analysis that caught my attention when I was sent the paper is that, you know, it comes back to analyzing the critical capillary PO2 and it comes back to physics, right? How do you drive oxygen from the capillary into the mitochondrial complex. And so the back calculation of what when that occurs and how it occurs, I thought was just a, a wonderful uh, way to approach this, this paper in terms of understanding meaning. Um, and it also gets back to, uh, to lactic acid um, and its, its role in facilitating oxygen delivery. But the, the last thing is that uh, I had sort of the same kind of moment um, that Holgar was talking about, is I, I had sat and looked at this data. And um I wanted to speak cardiology, even though I'm a pulmonology person, and I wanted to speak about cardiac output. And so it was a way for me to to get back to cardiac output, which is understandable to cardiologists, separate from peak oxygen uptake, which we know is you know a best predictor of outcomes and essentially any disease that's been studied, including normals. So that's that's what after looking at that data and that quasi-linear relationship we'll leave it as a, uh, a a sigmoidal relationship but um the the realization that that could be applied is is what I took to Dr. Wasserman and said you know look I think this is something we should write about so um, it take it took a little while for all that to percolate um, but it does percolate in in, in young minds and um, I think that's important to you know have a mentor that encourages that and says you know let's think outside the box let's think differently and you know let's think about something that's constructive and pragmatic and and we've all read papers that Probably shouldn't be published, but there are papers that are really diamonds in the rough and they need a little bit more help. And so reviewers need to keep that in mind, too, that it's, it's very important to facilitate young researchers careers and publication is part of that. Um, so I think that's that's incredibly important to make sure that that we do facilitate um, their growth and development. I was thinking about it from the other point of view is Holger was thinking, oh, God, don't send this to Dr. Springer. <laughs> He's going to think, you know, oh, this is some other method. You know, this is completely, you know, I'm going to defend my island of, um, of physiologic research. And, and it's the opposite. I I, I loved it, actually. And, and it, it actually makes several of the points that I think are, are important for physiologists, for cardiovascular physiology. So, um, you, know, to the, you know, praise to him to, to take something and, and make, it, make it a finer point, use people from other disciplines to actually further analysis, whether that's computer people or whether that's physics people. Um, that's also very important to facilitate those young careers. Thanks for letting us
1: at the journal host this uh, advancement and appreciate all the time you've committed to us here today. And I want to thank you both, uh, Dr. Stringer and Dr. Birchar, uh, for being on the show.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the AJP Heart and Circ podcast. Our theme music was written and performed by Ray Mitchell. Catch the latest episodes of our podcast at physiology.org slash journal slash AJP Heart.